0: Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I also have to let you know that our latest volume of Elwin Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future is now available in bookstores throughout the U.S., Canada, the UK, South Africa, and Australia, as well as through all major online retailers. So, whether you're looking to discover top new voices in the genre or are an inspiring writer or artist looking to see what these artists have done to win, this book is for you. Today's guest is Michael Johnson. I recently met up with Michael after not seeing him for many years in Frankfurt, Germany, at the International Book Fair. While schedules didn't permit it there, we did agree to do an interview once back in the US. Michael has many years of experience in publishing, technology, and educational distribution. He is currently Vice President of Content at Benetech, a global company that creates software for social good in the areas of education, employment, and social inclusion. In other words, Michael assists in making your stories and art accessible to anyone, regardless of circumstances. And as this is the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast, I'm very interested to speak today about publishing trends as it applies to authors as well as artists seeking to get their works published. I also want to discuss accessibility, a term that is playing a larger and larger role each year in publishing. So, with that, welcome Michael. Thanks for having me, John. Always good to talk with you. Absolutely. So before we get into any questions, please give me an overview of your history in publishing because it's it's amazing. <laughs> well, if long equals amazing, I
1: guess that's true. So I've been doing this thing, which is the blend between... <laughs> and storied, and storied experiences. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, I've been doing this thing, which is sort of the blend between technology, publishing, and distribution since 1985, back on the mainframes and all those things down to the PCs, back up to the web, and through all that stuff. So that means two things. One, I'm old. Two, I've made an (laughs) awful lot of mistakes, and uh, hopefully others will benefit from those mistakes and not make those same ones. Um, It's a joy for me to be in this business. I love the creative process, and I love applying technology where it should be applied uh, in solutions to make it easier for people to create and distribute content.
0: Well, good. This is, um, I think it's, like I said, this is the Rise of the Future podcast. And so with illustrators as well, there's been a lot of things that have happened since you said the mid eighties. What have you seen as the trend in publishing um, that you've, you know, the various waves, because I've, I've had various guests on before who, you know, have been in publishing for a long time. They've talked, they've talked the history of publishing where it's, yeah all the times that publishing was going to die, okay, this is the end, this is the end, this is the end, and we've got a new one right now with AI. But what do you see as been from yourself the track of publishing and and how it storytelling and illustration seems to continue to to bob up and and rise above any torrential currents and whatnot. Right. I'm I'm smiling when you said this is going to be the end of publishing and the end of this,
1: the end of that, because I was one of those people causing some of those things, which were viewed as the end, but uh, none of them are true. <laughs> Look, it, it is part of the human condition to tell stories. It's the number one way we communicate as a species. Sometimes these are faith-based stories. Sometimes they're safety or hunting stories. Sometimes they're just joyful stories or stories of the future in, in your circumstance or stories of the past and humans are always going to tell stories and publishing will always exist i remember when the pulp paperbacks came out and everybody said oh that's going to be the death of publishing because who would ever buy a hardback book anymore and if you can buy these books for 7.95 or 5.95 or 3.95 well that didn't happen and then i was one of those early technical geeks who were working on eBooks back at the turn of the century. And everybody said, Oh, this is going to be the death of publishing because they'll just get it digital and people will steal it and make copies of it. And we won't have any money. Well, that didn't happen either. Uh, each of these changes, paperback books, uh, Ebooks, Kindles, all these things have presented opportunities for voices that have yet to be heard, to get heard, and for some voices who hadn't been heard for a while to be available again to be heard because the technologies enable that. So I don't believe any of this, the sky is falling foolishness about this is going to be the end of publishing. Publishing will stop when people stop telling stories, which I don't think is ever going to happen. So that's my view, even as a technologist who has been involved with technology and publishing for almost 40 years. Technology is not going to kill publishing. Publishing will only stop, like I said, when people stop telling stories, and I don't see that happening. So I view them all as opportunities, resurrect backlists, uh, some of the work that you do uh, at Galaxy or at, at uh Writers of the future, these are great opportunities going in both directions. You can use technology to take works which are published years ago and make them new and vibrant and relevant, audiobooks, things like that, ebooks, uh, as well as the great opportunity to get voices which have yet to be heard. Technology enables publishing to tell those stories. So I believe as long as there's good stories, they'll be publishing
0: good i I wholeheartedly agree with you and having. Having witnessed all of these, um, at least some of these tectonic shifts in publishing and the uh, doomsayers cry, being gradually drowned by the tsunami of of more readers, because each generation you've got a new bunch of readers. And it's interesting now you've got the Gen Z and even some of the millennials who have gone back. To print books because they spend so much time on screens that they want to be able to like escape from that for a little bit and just go back to the you know good old fashioned print books. And in that age level has been a bit of an increase, a surge in, in publishing sales of the, of books, which is is quite interesting. You know, you can't I wouldn't have been able to predict that. No, and and so we, we don't know what's um, going to happen. No. But as you said, I think the stable datum on this is as long as people are willing to tell stories and able to tell stories, that you're going to have books out there. Now, how do you see AI playing into that? Because I know they're getting more and more. We haven't had a problem with it yet on Writers of the Future because our judges are able to tell the difference at this stage. But how do you see it playing out in terms of AI generated stories versus people generated stories
1: so AI basically um, and again speaking as the technologist AI is is basically plagiarism so this also is not new and John you've heard me tell some of these these this view before. Technology is not doing anything new. It's just taking things we've always done and doing them either faster or differently. So AI is plagiarism. We've always had plagiarism. Um, Just AI Mm -hmm. makes it an awful lot easier for people's works to get plagiarized. So uh, I think we have to watch for that. But we've had to watch for plagiarism for 200 years. So there's nothing new there. It just happens easier and faster. Uh, Authentic voices and authentic stories... Uh, we are decades away from a machine being able to have its own creative thought, uh, if in fact that ever happens. Uh, my, my standard AI speech is if Harvard, UC Berkeley, Stanford, and University of Chicago all published papers in respected scientific journals that said this guy was made of concrete, then AI would report this guy is made of concrete because AI doesn't know what the truth is. It just knows what other people say. So I, I'm, I, worry, I worry about the worry, if that makes any sense, John, much like all these other people said, paperbacks going to kill publishing and eBooks are going to kill publishing. Um, I, I worry that people are worrying about AI rather than worrying about new voices and good stories. So if, if we can take a pause back from that fear and focus on the creator's of the stories and the stories themselves, I think this is going to sort itself out over time. Uh, do I think that we will always be able to tell? No, just like you're not always able to tell when somebody plagiarizes and you're not able to tell if if the little bot helping you on an app is a person or a robot. Sometimes it makes a difference, sometimes it doesn't. But it's not. Right. It's certainly not going to be the death of publishing because AI doesn't have any original ideas.
0: Good. I I mean, that's that's been my perspective and i've talked to a lot of different people who have been all over the spectrum on it but um and that's also a a point that Owen hubbard who created the rise of the future contest had as well the main thing about computers they can't create they can only you know they can take and work with what gets input into it but they can't go and it, they don't create something new they can only rearrange what's already there and you've got some people that are really into the um A.I. is being uh, cognitive as compared to A.I. being really fast at sorting data and using data that's been input into it. And that's um, I think that's that's a critical point on this. And one of the things, too, with with the contest, we're really I mean, it's all about creatives, you know, wanting to get the aspiring writers and artists, those that want to be able to have a chance to get their voice heard. Of course, you're gonna have those people out there always gonna to try to gain something. I can I can beat the odds, I can beat this, I can go ahead and do it. And it's an embarrassment for them because if so far it hasn't been a problem. Well, we had one artist that before we really got became cognizant of, of AI art who used an AI program to create art that um he was selected to win the contest, and it came up when they had to do the various exercises in the art workshop you know you have to do life drawings and he couldn't do it you know was not able to do that because that person was not an artist um, they were one that could pro they knew how to really work the prompts very well and that was our inspiration to change our rules and in writing our judges are so well read that they can also tell plagiarism but they also said to just the quality of storytelling from an ai story to A winning story is still, you know, night and day. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And, you know,
1: there are politicians, athletes, preachers, just people, butchers, you know, of all all works of life who have their hand on the scale trying to find a way to basically cheat whatever game is being played. But authentic storytelling like goes on in, in the 40 years of writers of the future, writers and illustrators of the future a machine can't do it a, a machine can't do it uh, you know because it is that original thinking and, and i don't know if you can see over my shoulder here but i've got my current copy of writers of the future behind me and, and i i want to turn I that yeah. i want to i want to find a way to to turn a lot of those into you know like made for tv episodes or something like that because the stories are so rich the world building all these kind of things that that a machine can't do because machines don't have any intelligence, let alone artificial intelligence, as you said, they're just, uh, or as uh, L. Ron Hubbard said, they're they're just sort of remaking and reconfiguring what's already been told to them. So, I am worried about the worry, like I said, and there will be cheats. Yeah. I'm positive. I'm positive of that. But as far as a, a mainstream or a large scale negative impact on storytelling, I, I don't. I don't see it.
0: Good. Well, that's that's a relief, and everybody listening, this, I'm sure, will also be relieved too. At least those that are. Energetically trying to to play by the rules, you know they're they're trying to build their craft, whether it be illustration or uh, writing, to um, to become successful. And it's you know it's one thing to use programs to check grammar, you know, like Grammarly, but it's another thing to have something that just you, okay. Here's the prompts. Now I want a uh, a story about dragons in a near future world that crosses over you know, battleships with flying saucers, you know, and then you come out with them because it's it's absolutely not the same. And as much as you get into doing the prompts, it's still, that's not creativity, you know, being able to come up with the best story prompts. Right. Anyway, so on, um, you've been, I mean, we've been friends and you've been connected with us since uh, pretty much the get-go from what I, as far back as I can remember so, what's been your take? What's been your experience with, with like what you just said about Writers of the Future, volume 39? But what's your, what's your take or what's your experience with Writers of the Future or the fact that there's such a contest exists with no, you know, it, it's a total meritocracy with the judges have no idea and the judges are the biggest names in the, in the um, industry? yeah I, I think first,
1: I think the program is wonderful, and the final output because I don't participate in the program i 'm not a judge or anything like that. I just get to read the books when it's all done and look at the incredible illustrations so as a as a reader and a viewer i'm grateful to you and for for the whole program I, I think these types of programs, in whatever the genre may be, are a very strong statement for the importance of storytelling and Genuine storytelling and up and coming. These people who participate in your program, they are marginalized for one reason or another. You know, they, they can't get a publishing contract or they're from a certain community or certain uh, part of the country or ethnic background or whatever it happens to be. So – there are a number of different hurdles that they've faced just trying to get somebody to read their work and so the fact that they can submit work and it gets read by professionals in your organization that's incredible by itself i would love to see um you know writers of romance i would love to see writers of westerns i would i would love to see <laughs> this sort of thing in in multiple genres because not only are the stories great the end product the thing that i get to read and the illustrations i get to see they're all great but the the notion that there are hundreds of these people around the world who are who are just trying to get your attention to, to trying to participate in this program is fantastic and i think other genre would benefit by having that sort of fresh blood new blood competition i know all of the authors are not you know brand new people who have never written anything before or this is their first attempt or they're 19 years old or whatever i know there's a wide variety of of um people and people types represented in in your author group and your illustrator group. Yeah. But the fact that you go through it and coming up on 40 years, John, I mean that to do anything in this business well and consistently for 40 years is a big deal. So congrats. I know that's coming up. We're not there yet, but congratulations ahead of time on that. Uh, And I, I just think the program is, is wonderful. Now I'm a science fiction fan. So it's wonderful for me in that sense as well. But like I said, if they had a writers of history or or writers of biography, I I would love to see that too. Because too often in publishing, because so much is focused on, on the super large houses and on the bottom line of those houses, a lot of work ends up on the heap and never gets looked at seriously, and these people don't get published, which is why you have somebody like, you know, J.K. Rowling, who was rejected 15 times or whatever it was before they got published, you know. So you you just see these things. It's a tough business to crack into, and the fact that you guys have built this sort of on-ramp onto the publishing highway for decades, I just think it's fantastic.
0: Yeah, it was um – it's really proved to be a very brilliant idea that Alan Herbert came up with back in 1983. And with the original judges, like, you know, there's some of the most amazing mainstays of, of science fiction publishing have been the judges, you know, all, all the way back from Frank Herbert and Ann McCaffrey. We've got, you know, Robert Sawyer. There's um, Orson Scott Card. He's still, you know, judging. And we have so many of these, these judges that for them, it's an opportunity to really, you know, pay forward to the next generation. And now after 40 years, we have like four generations of of judges now that um, we have on board, you know, working with this. And um, it's been great seeing how, to, how it has evolved. You know, we're constantly looking forward to broadening the scope of what type of storytelling is available. It's, it's become very obvious in the art contest that we have the illustrators of the future because we've had, winners from all over the world and their art, the art in China is different than the art in Vietnam is different than the art in Ukraine is different than the United States is different than Costa Rica. It's different than South Africa. So we have those different looks. And so when you look at the art, like you see there in volume 39, like there are all kinds of different styles. And so that's one thing I think is just one of my, my favorite things about this contest is that it really is opening the door We've got entries from over 175 countries. We've had winners from 50 countries, so it's just strictly, you know, based upon the merit of of the of the uh, person's story or art. All the judges see is the art or the story and a number. So they have no idea of age, nationality, ethnic, sex, anything. You know, it's just strictly can they tell a good story or not? And it's it's amazing how well it's worked out. And for the most part, everybody that. When would they come out are just some of the most amazing people, you know they win this the contest because of their quality of storytelling and illustration, not for any other reason. So we're just we're really you know to use a British term quite chuffed at the uh, you know the, at the results of of the uh, contest and how it continues to grow. And now with this podcast has it's now four years old, and each episode now is well over two million listens uh, each. And it just, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm really happy and pleased with it, but like we've got our forum is, has won the last three years in a row, best forum on science fiction competitions. And um, we've got our online workshop that we offer that's free is, um, had over 8,000 people. So it's just, it's amazing how it's gone on. I'm just curious you've been, you're a science fiction fan, any particular Ellen Herbert story that you find is, is some of your favorites? Yeah, this may seem like an an odd choice to you, but uh, I think "To the Stars"
1: is is, oh, is. I
0: love that one.
1: I mean, I mean, you got Battlefield Earth, obviously, but but you know, "To the Stars" super tight story, great world, well, universe building, not just world building, great universe building, and some deep, deep thoughts. So it's not just you know space monsters, etc. You know, it's okay when you take this journey. When you come back, everybody you know is not going to be here anymore. I, I, that, that's my, and that was a quick answer for me, John. You saw how quickly I answered. So that, that's probably it. And, and that doesn't take away from Battlefield or anything like that.
0: Um, but as, as far as uh, that's sort good of science you systems, Great. You yeah. said that. Yeah. When I re-released that, because it was originally written in, I think, 50. When I re-released it, it got a star review from Publishers Weekly this was the early two thousands and entertainment weekly said we want to review it. And I went, Oh no, <laughs> you know, cause that could have been just like, it could have been problems and they came out with it and they gave it an A minus. And it was like, mm-hmm. it was the highest of any of the books that were in there. And it's like score. Yes. Because yeah. it said, this is, it's as valid now as it was when it was written at that point, 50 plus years ago, because it, is, it was one of the first, I don't think it was the first, it was maybe the second novel ever written on the time dilation theory. And it was done so that it made it understandable by the, the layperson. As mass approaches the speed of light, time approaches zero. And um, so you got these people on the long voyage going out near the speed of light and they come back and the people that they knew are, are, are gone but yeah. also what's good is religions have changed religions change politics change you just see like the evolution and it gives a really good perspective because if you look at our history of the planet that's what happens you know and so when he put it there and just made it in a very you know in a in a short novel format you're like wow that really is what happens here and it was yeah. um it's very gritty yeah
1: and you know that so that that's my immediate, and I'm, I'm
0: sticking with that answer because that, that's that's my favorite. That's a great answer. So now, the subject of accessibility. so I looked it up to make sure I really had it, and you're gonna we're gonna dig, dig into this because I think this is really important that people understand this and how to make their stories and artwork what they need to do to make it accessible. but for those of you who don't know Accessibility can be viewed as the ability to access and benefit from some system or entity. The concept focuses on enabling access for people with disabilities or enabling access through the use of assistive technology. However, research and development and accessibility brings benefits to everyone. So that's my little Google search definition. So <laughs> I'd like to dig more into that with you right now on accessibility. And I think it's becoming a law that pretty much In order to publish, you have to have your story or whatever you're doing accessible at some point in the not-too-distant future. So let's give me a, a 101, and then we'll dig a little bit deeper, please. Sure. So when we talk about accessibility for people with print disabilities,
1: the first thing I think is important is identify what do we mean by print disability. So the broad answer, still brief, but the broad answer is, People who are print disabled fall in the following major categories, somebody who is blind, someone who is low vision, someone who has dyslexia, and then there's a series of other skeletal or muscular or uh, neurological issues which may cause somebody to have a print disability. The simple answer, and this won't play well on the radio, but the simple answer is I'm holding up my phone, right? So if I hand my Android to somebody and say, can you read this book? And the answer is no, odds are they have some sort of print disability. So in the United States of America, for 33 years, we've had the American with Disabilities Act, which protects readers in public institutions. So if, if you're trying to get digital information in your studies, the institution which is providing your education is required to give you fair and equal access to the content as the same as a cited reader would have. Um, now, that's a law which is based on... Uh, the American process of if I feel my rights have been infringed, I have to file a suit. And what happens is universities all over the country get sued and they all lose because they're not accessible. It's pretty straightforward. Now the law that I believe you're referencing is the European Accessibility Act. So this is in the whole of the EU. The law was passed in 2019 in traditional EU fashion. So it was passed in 2019. doesn't even come into effect until 2025. However, It's less than 600 days from today when this law comes into effect. And the long and the short there – I'm not a lawyer. The long and the short there is if you are offering digital goods and services anywhere in the EU, they must be fully accessible or else your entity is uh, susceptible to a fine by the government. So it doesn't require a student or a parent or something to file a lawsuit. You would just be in violation of EU law. Just like, you know, all the cookies banner comes up and says, do you accept these cookies or not? That's from the GDPR, which is the privacy the protection law in the EU, which just because it's on the internet just happens everywhere in the world. The same thing will happen for right. content in the EU on the 28th of June, 2025. So- I want, I want to talk to your other point, which was very well made, which is you know things about accessibility are done to address the issues of a certain community but benefit everybody i 'm going to give you three super quick examples, right so the first one is you 're in an airport lounge or a hotel lobby or something, and there 's a television on, but it 's too noisy you, you can 't hear what the presenter is saying or hear what the score is, whatever but there 's a scroll going along the bottom that tells you what 's happening right there w- there was a car accident on the one or the five or whatever, or the score is 23, 24, whatever the score is. And that closed captioning at the bottom came about as an accessibility accommodation for people who have hearing disabilities. So it's the law in the United States. If you make a TV projection device, that device has to have the ability to do is closed captioning. And if you broadcast in the United States, your content has to be closed captionable or else you're in violation of federal law. But you and I and everybody else who's ever glanced at a TV screen or a monitor or any place else where we go and has that scroll across the bottom, we benefit, all humanity benefits from that accommodation made for a specific community. The next one, which is very deeply personal to me, and that's curb cuts and ramps instead of stairs. So as a guy who used to travel 100 days a year on the road, always with a rollerboard for the airplane, I'm a big fan of curb cuts and I'm a big fan of ramps <laughs> instead of stairs because lugging that suitcase up and down is a real pain. And those accommodations came about. Because of people with physical mobilities, wheelchairs, walkers, things like that. You couldn't do curbs. Curbs too high, stairs were impossible. So these accommodations were made and the expense was added to the people who build the streets and build the hotels and build the office buildings, all that kind of stuff to accommodate people with physical disabilities. Yet all of us, including me, and this is also true for people who push like baby carriages or anything like that, those ramps and those curb cuts are a big deal. So everyone benefits. And the third one... Just to give people, I could go on all day, but we don't have all day, unfortunately. Um, We got half an hour, so we're we're going good. (laughs) Okay. Well, the the third (laughs) main area is the circumstance where all of the voice activated assistants, so Siri or Alexa or any of those things, those came about by people who had. Uh, different types of uh, muscular or skeletal disabilities, and they could not interact with things that had buttons or pole tabs or whatever they the only way they could communicate was was to be able to speak because they might be paralyzed, partially paralyzed or they may may not have hands or whatever the situation is so all the speech technology that we talk about Siri Alexa all of these things um, all the assistance they 're all there to accommodate people who could only communicate using their voice in no physical matter. So these are three simple examples, right? Closed captioning, Mm -hmm. curb cuts, and the voice assistance, all of which were done to accommodate and treat equitably these disabled communities from which all of us benefit all day, every day. So having said all that, when it comes to accessibility in book content, there are a bunch of reasons. The main reasons are, probably business reasons, right? So the first one is 20% of the Earth's population has a print disability. So if you're publishing, you are automatically eliminating 20% of your target market because they can't read your book. They're just physically unable to read your book. So... That's, that's a bad mark. – I'm not a marketer, John, but that's a bad marketing strategy to consciously eliminate 20% of the Earth's population. So that's not a good strategy. The second one is the people who decide what we see on the internet when you type into a search box what you want to see on the internet, they're taking these – eBooks that have full accessibility metadata inside of them, alternative text for the images, long descriptions for the images, proper headings and, and and notes, footnotes, glossaries, all those kind of things. If done fully accessible, those indexers of the internet can reach into your book and expose all sorts of discoverability. Let's just say you have a picture of... Uh, Of John Goodwin in your book, which you should. Everybody should have a picture of John in their book. Um, But (laughs) John's probably not in the Onyx data feed that you're feeding Amazon or Barnes and Noble or or independent bookstores. But if this picture of John Goodwin has the appropriate accessibility metadata, then the indexers can reach into the EPUB file, service John Goodwin. So when I search for John Goodwin, your book might get discovered because you did a good job on that image description where it wouldn't come up in the author title data feed in Onyx or any of those other ones. So, I mean, that's a quick overview. The, the, The big hitters that cause the problems are image descriptions, This isn't a secret. Blind people can't see pictures, so you need to be able to describe the pictures so the blind people have an understanding of what's going on there. But it's not just blind people. There's other people who have troubles with things like charts and graphs, schematics. So if you go through and get your books accessible, and I know that Galaxy is doing some of their books accessible, and I'm I'm very happy and thankful about that. Uh, If you go through and and get these books accessible, then you broaden your audience. And then, of course, there is the legal issue, like I mentioned, the American with Disabilities Act here in the States. The, the province of Manitoba just passed a very strict Accessibility Act, which is coming in before the European Accessibility Act. The EU, with the European Accessibility Act, there's a similar thing going on in Japan. So around the world, global governments are putting these uh, legal restraints in. But I don't want people to be motivated by the legal issues. I want you to be motivated by the 20% of the population issues, by the yeah, higher level a, discovery a... issues. And and by
0: the as I just as as I cleared up with you earlier today, that's way more better. Yeah, way more better. Yeah, Uh, and the other part is
1: a more accessible ebook is just a better ebook. It's just better. More thought went into constructing it. More thought went into why the pictures, what the pictures are. More thought goes into chapter headings and things like that because you're laying it out again to accommodate a specific audience, but benefiting everybody.
0: Now with that, because I want to now dig into that because I think that's, this is really important for anybody that's, I mean, there's, I think there's 4 million books a year that are being quote unquote published. A million are done through more traditional lines or through the, you know, indies and whatnot. That's a lot of books. So, you know, I've talked a lot about in the past, the need to have a social media presence, but there's this whole other thing we're just touching on here that will, maybe just be the difference between success and failure just by the accessibility of your story, your book. So it takes work to do it. It's not a matter of writing a story and slapping it up on KDP, Kindlepreneur, or, you know, just trying to like, okay, I'm going to run it through Kindle Vela chapter a day or, or that type of thing. There's the whole subject of accessibility. So can we walk through a little bit on that? What is involved in doing that and just, justifying whatever time it takes to create that? Sure. So a lot of this depends
1: on the tool you use. So if if you're doing your manuscript in Microsoft Word, the new Microsoft suite from uh, almost two years ago moving forward, they have an accessibility checker built right in. So all you need to do is turn it on. And it will tell you the mistakes you're making. And you can push the accessibility button and it will go through and say, hey, you have a header too or you have a header 3 but you don't have a header 2 so you have an you have an h1 you have an h3 you don't have an h2 that's just bad layout where you wouldn't notice it in print you wouldn't even notice it in your standard ebook but with the accessibility checker on it will help you do a better job and then once you get used to doing your layouts properly it'll just come like anything else comes like you know centering paragraphs and things like that so if if you're using that tool there's another great tool out there called vellum which is a very good tool to use that. You can use Adobe InDesign, but you should get something from circular software because InDesign is set up to create print files and PDFs, which are pictures of print files. So you'll need, if you're using InDesign to do your work, you'll need something from, say, an organization like Circular Software to have all those extra widgets built in to do the accessibility. So the the simple test is have somebody read the book to you and figure out if you can follow it for and this is a big thing about pictures right so if there's a picture in the book the person reading the book they will say to you oh there's a picture i mean i'm looking at the book behind me right there's a picture of a great orange and red dragon okay well you should tell your manuscript put the picture of the r- orange dragon in there and then put in the alt text that says image Orange dragon, breathing fire, you know, whatever. So like any new skill, it is hard to learn, but really not hard to do. And there are free tools out there. As an example, if you use Word, there's a tool from uh, an organization called DAISY, which is a global standards organization. Uh, called Word to EPUB. So it will take your Word file and convert it to EPUB. And then there are free checkers of your EPUB, which will tell you about your accessibility. I don't want to turn this into a technical conversation, but there's a lot of material out there. Um, and anybody can go to, um, can, can reach out to Benetech for any particular advice uh, about how to do this. But yes, it's a new skill, right? Just like we had to learn to lay out for eBooks. You're going to need to learn how to do this accessibility stuff. But once you learn it, you learn it. It's riding a bike or chopping wood or any other skill you're going to accomplish. Uh, But it's not hard, right? It's more like carpentry than it is architecture. There are tools. There are rules. You use the tools. You follow the rules. You're going to be able to build (laughs) stuff. That doesn't mean you can do the Sistine Chapel or the Eiffel Tower, but you can be a good carpenter. It's, it's, It's really not that hard. It does take a concentrated effort.
0: But it can be right. easily learned and done. Okay, good. With illustrations, I know that there's um, when I upload photos into and when I, when I create like blogs or, or articles, you have the name of the art, then you have the description, and then you've got alt text. What's the importance? So you got the, the name of the the name of your illustration, the name of your picture is just the name that you have it filed with or or stored as which is not what gets pulled up when you have it on your, when you upload it. So, but like you've got the two different names. So can you like a little bit more describe more the importance of, of each one and what's significant about the first name versus the alt text?
1: Right. So the alt text is basically you are typing out the description of the image. Right. So you, you could name an image and say Mona Lisa. Okay. Well, if I know what the Mona Lisa is and I know what the Mona Lisa looks like, I'm good. But if I'm not sighted or I don't know what the Mona Lisa is, I'm going to need some more information. So you would type out a woman turned this way with long hair, with a, this sort of look on her face or whatever it happens to be. What you're trying to do... So th- this is radio, basically. If you, If you imagine that your story is being told on the radio, what would you have to do to set the scene of this picture? So... On the radio, you wouldn't just hear a loud noise and be expected to understand that was a tiger or, or a dragon or an alien or something like that. You have to tell me what the heck's going on. So imagine your pictures are on the radio. What would you do to describe them so the person could, in essence, see
0: the picture? So that's what the long description is about. So it doesn't, I mean, that's that's a perfect answer for me because I, I didn't have it that simplified. So is there a um, best practice on length of a description, or is it just it takes as long as it takes to describe your picture?
1: <laughs> so I, I would say, uh, for me, when I'm asked this question, like you just did, my thing is, if I was listening to this, when when do I check out? You know, when when do I mentally yeah. say I, I? They kept talking and I wasn't listening anymore, so I could say you know keep it under keep it under this many characters or this many words but that might not work for the description if it, it's it's one thing to describe uh, a, a picture of a fir tree it's another thing to describe a stock market table you know it's just dramatically different amounts of data so i don't want to put a certain number of words or characters on it but you uh, John, we've known each other a long time. You know, I always communicate yeah. in simple stories. Just when would you get
0: tired of hearing somebody explain this picture? <laughs> and that's when you should stop. Well, that's a good answer. That makes sense. You know, so, um, yeah, it's like um, that totally makes sense. And you can't assume either that you can't position it with something else because the person wouldn't necessarily know what that thing you're positioning with is either. So you wouldn't talk about like um, – boxing gloves well they're like marshmallows on your hand you know it's like what's a marshmallow you know so you also have to make sure that you describe it with someone that really you can't describe a term with another term that is equally not understood yes that that's correct and and you know to give people a little bit
1: here's another one of my stories right so if you picture three books each with an image of the Eiffel Tower, exactly the same image. Your photographer took it, you took it personally, you bought it from Getty, whatever, right? So it's three different books. The first book is a cookbook and the Eiffel Tower's in a chapter about making crepes just because the author thought that would be fun to have a French thing on, uh, talking about a French Okay, well, there, there's no intellectual value of that picture. So in that circumstance, the correct answer, and this is another reason why AI won't work. In that circumstance, the correct answer is to put in the coding that says, this is a decorative image. So nothing will be read to the reader because well, what the heck does the Eiffel Tower have to do with me making crepes? There's no, no intellectual value added, right? Okay, right. same exact picture. Second book. This is a travel book and the Eiffel Tower is in the chapter about visiting Paris. Okay, well, maybe you have something relevant to say. This is the Eiffel Tower. It's close to this. The closest metro stop is this. Uh, Don't go on Wednesdays because they're closed for cleaning, whatever it happens to be, right? So it's informational and it fits around the surrounding text in the book that has to do with why I, as the author, put this picture in there on this page in this chapter. Same picture, different book. This is an engineering textbook for college. And we're talking about the structural strength of the, the tensile strength of structural steel. Still the Eiffel Tower, you're gonna to say something dramatically different. You're not gonna say Doko on Wednesday because that's when they do cleaning. You're gonna talk about all sorts of engineering formulae, which would make my brain explode. So again, another reason why AI won't solve this problem. But when I said the long how long should it be? It should be long enough to describe. Well, in the first one, you're not describing anything because there's no value add we're talking about crepes not the eiffel tower. Second one, what's the value add on for me as a traveler in paris? Third one, what's the value add for me as an engineering student? So, I tell that story all the time, room full of publishers, everybody gets it right away because they understand one, there's no ai threat, two, it really is about it's as much about why is this picture here as it is about what is in this picture.
0: That makes good sense. That's I'm I'm loving this interview. This is so good cuz I know we've got to be compliant to the laws on this stuff here, but what's in, what's in it for me as a publisher that's going to help increase sales? How do, I, how do I leverage that? And so how would I, as an author or as an illustrator, um, leverage this to be able to, you know, to put the extra effort in, to go, to go the full distance, to do a good job, to sell more books? So how does it work now? So I'm, I do a good job. I'm, I'm like, I make sure I do all these things, all the illustrations. I do all the, the meta tags are all properly done. And I make sure the H1, H2, H3, it's all properly sequenced and all that stuff there. So now how does it work that this makes it, what's in it for me? How does this really work for me besides making sure I don't get arrested down the road or <laughs> whatever is going to happen to me when the book police come out? Right, so I'm not sure I can help you with your arrest record, John. That's a separate topic for a different <laughs> okay. podcast. But
1: um, uh, so the the point to all this is we're we're trying to reach more readers, whether it's an emotional social desire to reach more readers or whether it's a commercial desire to reach more readers. I can promise anybody who's listening, if your book is not accessible. That 20% of the population is not going to buy your book. You might as well be in Cleveland, Ohio, trying to sell books in, in Chinese or something because people literally cannot read them. So... The, what's in it for you from a commercial perspective, from how, how do you sell more units or whatever? Again, I'm not a marketer, but dismissing 20% of the Earth's population is just a bad strategy. Right? Um, the other, and I go back to the discovery piece, right? So if you're doing a good job, especially on describing your images in your book, you're going to tease out search results that would not normally come up based on the book metadata that you're, you're giving to your distributor this picture of John Goodman, like I said, search for you because I did a good job describing you were in that picture. And that, that but does this help
0: him. the 80% as well? Is that going to help the 80% that helps discover me too?
1: That, that helps everybody because discovery is discovery. So if you go to Google books or whatever, and you type something in, Google's absorbing uh, all the indexers are absorbing all of these EPUB files that are submitted for sale. Right. And they're ripping through them and the books, which are properly, uh, done from an accessibility standpoint, all that information, every description of every image is now discoverable at the search line, right? So if mm-hmm. this is a book, let's just take to the stars, right? So to the stars has certain metadata that you put in your channel for Amazon, Barnes Noble, independent bookstores, all over the world, whatever it is you're doing, right? And you're telling right. it uh, author title, ISBN price, publication date, all that kind of stuff. Okay. But but uh, a picture of the, let's just say there's a picture in that book of the minerals that they're going out to harvest as part of one of these, I don't want to give the whole story away, but you know, it's part of one of these journeys that they're going on. Well, if there was an image in that book that had that mineral in it and you had the alt text description that described that mineral, that's not going to show up in your feed to Amazon. That's not going to show up in your feed to Barnes and Noble, but it will show up from a discoverability standpoint if somebody typed in the name of that mineral. So these Hmm. are the kind of things what you're done, again, following my other examples about closed captioning and curb cuts and the voice assistance, this is done to address the ability challenges for a certain amount of the population, but everybody benefits. And I'm telling you, 100 days a year on the road, anybody out there listening, you spend 100, years, 100 days a year on the road pulling a walk, a rollerboard, and you'll be the happiest person ever that there's curb cuts and ramps, right? So... I'm not in a wheelchair, I don't have a cane, I don't have a walker, but I benefit as much as any of those people do with curb cuts and ramps. So everybody will benefit from this. So so that, that there's sort of the business bang for your buck uh, on that piece. And like I said, I'm not a sales and marketing guy, but, but that's, those are the realities of the situation. Yeah.
0: So does, so is it Google or any other search engine? Does it also work like with um, other search, like YouTube and whatnot, where they actually go in and, and check accessibility? On well, let's let's go into like okay, this podcast. Does accessibility fall into cat? Does that play, come into play on people doing podcasts or doing radio shows?
1: So. The accessibility issue around any uh, voice programs is there are people who can't hear. So the accessibility play for that is to have someone uh, do signing. So people can see and they can understand sign language, but they can't hear, so they don't know what you and I are saying. I don't know that that's outside of my my regular work, so I don't know what... And that's Got the accessibility it. answer. Anytime voice okay. is the key method of communication, signing is the accessibility issue.
0: Ah, okay, good. So it's not like the... It's not the, the closed caption thing necessarily for a podcast that would make the difference. It's the signing. Well, uh,
1: closed captioning, which is sort of like a built-in feature these days, it, is also helpful. So um, that that works as well because... A lot of people who can't hear have no trouble reading, so, so that's fine as well. And a lot of the stuff auto-generates. I don't, I don't know about this particular tool that we're using yeah. today, John, but a lot of it auto-generates, and, and that addresses the issue. And again, people may view that, oh, that's an accommodation for people who have uh, hearing disabilities. Well, there are lots of times in lots of situations that I'm in that I can't play the sound. Like, I'm not going to play the sound of a podcast on a plane. I mean, if I have earplugs, fine. But if I don't have earplugs, I'm right. not going to, right? Or uh, th- there are a number of options. So uh, spoken word auto-translated into closed captioning, there's a circumstance where AI works pretty darn well because the yeah. the, the translation engines. Now, again, there's no thought going on there. They're just taking sound waves and turning them into bits and bytes and then turning them into characters. So I don't want anybody to get too excited that, that a
0: machine knows what you and I are <laughs> saying. That's, that's not happening. Right. Okay, good. That makes sense in that. So now when I read the description of Benetech, that was um that sounds like a really cool company. So how did your how did you evolve from I mean you've done so many different things, just bouncing from all aspects of, of publishing and that whole thing for four decades and end up in Benetech now.
1: All right. So Benetech was actually a, a consulting client of mine. They came to me and said, hey, you understand this mysterious blend of things between publishing distribution and, and technology and all that kind of stuff. Can you help us understand it? They knew everything about accessibility, about blindness, about dyslexia, about working with students around the world who have these print disabilities and things like that, but the the business and finance mechanics of how publishers create content, how they distribute, why does a university choose this book or that book? Let's say I'm doing a you know comparative fiction class at a university, or, you know, Orson Card, uh, you know, he, he teaches. So, you know, how how does he decide what books to use? Because Benetech was in the in this situation where they were They had to make sure they had the right mix of content for their growing user base. So I consulted there for about a year, helping them understand sort of the business of publishing and the businesses of published distribution, particularly as it relates to distribution in uh, schools, libraries, universities, things like that. And then you start to hear the stories, John, about the life-changing effects that Benetech has on its members, people who were destined to be... High school dropouts or GED people, and and get hard scrabble jobs and s- struggle for their whole lives just because of this one issue. Then they get involved with Benetech and Bookshare, which is a collection of 1.2 million books all accessible for our members, uh, and and it, it's it's life changing. And uh, I was talking to. Uh, to Kim about this. I always say Elron Hubbard was one of the people who invented the future. And now I get a chance to work with an organization which is using technology basically to bring, not sight, but to bring the written word to people who can't see. And it, for my background, it was a very compelling case. And the more members I met and the more stories I heard had about the impact that Benetech has on and through Bookshare on its readers um, I, I just, I just couldn't say no anymore. And I, I came to work here. So that, that's wow. what I'm doing.
0: That, that's, that's amazing. I love, cause I love the story of Bennett of, of your company, you know, that, you know, that they're doing what they are doing to help on the social areas of just, you know, you don't really think part of the 80% don't really think of the issues that exist for the 20% and that somebody's taking responsibility like you are is, is um, in itself is, is really heartwarming, but also realizing that the benefits that will play on the 80% too, people don't realize how much they, they owe the handling of that 20% to their own life improvements. Yeah, and you know, people with print disabilities are are literally
1: everywhere. It it cuts across every demographic, every country of origin, every faith practice, every orientation. It cuts through everything. There's all kinds of people who, ha- yeah. who have all kinds of abilities and disabilities. And the reality is, there are more people in the world that are blind than have red hair, and there are more people in the world that have dyslexia than are left-handed. So this is not an insignificant part of the population. And it's not just these people. Another thing that comes up, especially in the educational environment, especially at higher education, is colorblindness. So it's fine. You have a bar chart and you have a blue bar, a green bar, a red bar, and a yellow bar. That's fine. I'm not telling you don't do that. I'm just telling you if comprehension is dependent on my ability to tell which bar is blue and which bar is green, it doesn't mean I'm stupid because I can't tell blue from green that that's just a condition of certain people's eyes right so you don't have to change your chart but in your alt text description say this you know the following is a is a bar chart there are four bars the bar on the left is yellow and the value is 16 the next bar is blue and the value is 21 and the next bar is green and the value is 7 and the next bar is red and the value is 52 so then you give me a chance to comprehend what's going on because if the question is what is the value Uh, You know, as you can see by the blue bar, if that's going on in a lecture or that's going on in in the surrounding text, no, I can't tell which bar is blue. So you have now prevented me from understanding. It's not my brain or my willingness. You, by your choices, have prevented me from understanding the importance of the graph. So I might fail that class or fail that quiz or not grasp that concept because you didn't put the effort in to describe the chart.
0: Now that brings up a whole different point. I was even thinking of is what you take for granted isn't a legitimate concern. Like I'm thinking of, yeah, I need to make sure that I describe the picture. I need to describe Eiffel Tower, and I got your your scenario one, two, and three, but not even thinking like, oh yeah, colorblindness and all these different things that you just take for granted, you know, that. You need to be able to like look at these things if you really, truly want to make sure that you can access that full 20% of the spectrum. So are there, when you go through and do your checks, is there something that, like on the, on the print stuff, is there stuff that also checks for that too? Did you make sure that the color blindness versus this, that, and the other thing that you need to look for are, have been accounted for? I wouldn't have thought that.
1: Yeah. Well, some of the tools are better than other tools, John. And, and this is a, a day-long sort of lecture class thing that I could run. But um, it, m- most of it is about an awareness, right? Mo- most of it is yeah. about an awareness. And, and I want to be clear. I'm not knocking anybody who wants to use blue, green, orange, red. That, that is, is, I'm not telling you. No, I, I got that. that. Yeah. I'm telling people to change, but not do something different. I want you to do it better. Take your chart. Make it any way you want. Just do a good job describing it. So I, as the reader, have a chance because also I'm not asking for a million dollars. I'm just asking for a reasonable chance to understand or enjoy your content that, That's in, and buy it if you'd let me,
0: you know, so so that's what this is about. Good. So then in terms of getting an understanding of that, so do you have special classes or workshops that you offer or things that you provide through... Um through Benetech that helps people to get a better understanding of what they need to do to make their their work really accessible and and answer the questions that I didn't even think to ask, like colorblindness? Sure. If you go to bornaccessible.org you'll
1: you'll find an uh, an FAQ page and you'll also find a list of resources page. So that's a good place to start. You should also look at the daisy, which spelt just like the flower, uh, daisy.org which is the global standards organization around accessibility. They have a ton of resources available, including a whole a free series of webinars on, on how to do this kind of creation and stuff like that. Benetech certifies publishers. We teach the publishers how to do this work properly. We also certify the conversion houses who do the work for the publishers. So again, this is a whole day-long talk on that piece, but there's a lot of, of free information. If you just went to, to Benetech, to boardaccessible.org and you went to daisy.org, you'll get links to tons of free resources, tools, webinars,
0: FAQs, all kinds of things to help out. Good. And then do you also do uh, personal consultations? Uh,
1: so we work with the publishers. I'm happy to work with publishers one-on-one. I give talks all over the world on this topic. Uh, that's part of what I was doing in Frankfurt, John. Um, Mm -hmm. so we just, as a charity, we don't have the bandwidth to work with individual authors or things like that. Um, but, but we have done a lot of stuff for Ally, the, which is a global independent author organization. And we're trying to do more with them to reach that community because basically you're talking to the department <laughs> who does all this, and so I don't scale very well.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. Well, this has been great. Um, as I knew it would happen, or I went really fast, and like you said. This is normally a minimally a day long seminar. I've been trying to like chop up into to an hour. So I really appreciate your taking the time to to provide this data. And I think I absolutely know that the listeners are going to love this, and especially the hardcore writers that want to be able to take their their own publishing and works to the next level even if nothing more than just insisting that their publisher you know follow these rules and and make their their stories accessible so um thank you very much it's my pleasure john always happy to help absolutely and thank you for listening subscribe to the writers of the future podcast wherever you get your podcasts We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of Future Series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Michael. Thank you.